Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Ted Lanzaro. Thanks for being on the show again, Ted. Thank you, Whitney, for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, I'm honored to have Ted back. He was on show WS237. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that episode as well, but happy to have him back. I know a lot of people wonder about this common term, you know, 1031 or 1031 exchange, and that's something we want to dive into today. But Ted is a certified public accountant and real estate investor with over 29 years of real estate consulting and investing experience. He's the author of The Tax Smart Landlord, a book of tax strategies for real estate investors. He's helped thousands of investors nationally save millions of dollars in taxes in his career. Ted, thank you again so much for your time today. I appreciate you being on the show again and just helping you know myself and, and the listeners understand you know this topic. I know a lot of investors that are listening and are, are wondering, you know, how do we do this? What does that mean? Is this something I should do? You know, this 1031 lingo that we hear all the time, right? So, you know, let's get started as far as, you know, maybe you give us just some brief background of what this is and and then let's dive into some details. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. I mean, it really is one of the available strategies when you sell an investment property. It's one of the available strategies to defer the capital gains on the sale of the property. It's probably, in my mind, the most important wealth building strategy in real estate investing. And here's why. Let me give you an example. So I had a client. He was a plumber. Okay. And as a plumber, he would go out and he would do his business, but he also started picking up small residential units, you know, a two-family here, a four-family there, you know, a small apartment building. And over a period of about eight years, he built up a portfolio of about 150 units, right, that he was running and managing locally. Now, this was in South Florida. And this was at a time when the market had be, was beginning to rise. The prices were starting to go up. And so what he did was he actually sold his entire portfolio to another investor. And he would have had about a million dollar capital gain on the sale of all of those properties. And so what he did was he decided, well, I'm going to do a 1031 exchange. And he went and he bought a shopping center on the main road in Boca Raton, Florida, where I lived, and used that shopping center as his replacement property. So he never paid tax on the million dollars. He just did this 1031 exchange and bought a replacement property for actually more than what he sold the whole portfolio for. Okay. So now over the next year, year and a half, he's fixing up the shopping center, and he's putting new tenants into it, right? And the market's continuing to rise at this point also. So at one point when he's complete, he's got it fully rented, he gets an offer for it, which is $2 million more than they paid for it, okay? So now he's got basically a $3 million capital gain. And so he's like, well, what do I do now? I'm gonna do another 1031 exchange. 
And so he took the proceeds from the, from the shopping center and he ended up investing them passively into six AutoZone buildings in Texas, which cost him a little bit more than what he had sold his shopping center for. But now he's completely passive. It's a triple net lease. So AutoZone's paying all the expenses on the buildings. He has a management company who basically collects the rent writes the mortgage check and sends him the balance. And at that point, he's making about $40,000 a month, totally passive, and now he's retired, right? And so he's never paid these. He's he's up now like $3 million in capital gains and hasn't paid a cent in capital gains tax because he's been using the 1031 exchange to defer these capital gains. So you can see how that's like over the course of about five years, his net worth went up by three or four million dollars, but he never paid a dime in taxes, and that's why why I say it's a, it's a very important wealth building strategy. Wow! Do you? Th- I was going to ask you about how long that took, but you said about five years, and that's about five very years. impressive. Do you think that was the timing of the market of when he got in, or do you think that you know most people could do that in you know say four to six years? Well, I think a lot of it had to do with the timing of the market, right? You know, so it's a great strategy when you're picking up things at the bottom and then selling them as the market rises. Okay. Now, did he pay a premium for the properties he bought in Texas, you know, at the end of the auto zones? Yeah, because he was at the height of the market at that point, but he was also deferring gain and he knew he was getting into a kind of a low return kind of scenario, but he had already deferred all of this gain. So, and it was triple net, it was easy, it was passive. So he didn't have to do anything else but collect his money every month. Wow. Five years of retirement right there. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, what are some, so I guess some basic rules, some basic things we need to understand if we're looking at, you know, this same scenario or being able to do a 1031, you know, from one deal to the next and growing our portfolio that way? Okay. So the way it works is that when you sell a property, all of the proceeds of that property go sort of into escrow, what it's called a qualified intermediary, somebody who facilitates 1031 exchanges. At that point, you have 45 days to identify properties. You can either identify up to three properties of any market value, or you can identify more than three properties, but they can't be more than double what the value of the property you're selling is. At that point, after you've done your identification, you then have a total of 180 days to close on those one or more of those properties. From a practical and investor standpoint, right, you don't start looking for the properties, you know, the day of the closing of the property you're selling. I mean, you know you're selling a property there's typically, but from the time you sell the contract until the time the buyer gets through their due diligence, right? There's, you know, there might be three months there. There's, you know, nine days. So you should be looking at a property, you know, that whole time, right? So that you're actually adding to the clock by looking for replacement properties before the 45-day window ever even starts, which is the day you close on the sale. So what could people be doing like now where the market's a little little tighter or whatever, right? Let's say I have a property that I might be willing to exchange. Or let's say I come across a great property right now, 
right? So I know that I can put my other property on the market and probably sell it pretty fast in this market. There's a huge demand for rental properties right now. So let's say I find a property that I know has a better rate of return than something I currently own, right? Well, now I can actually just say, okay, look, I'm gonna buy this property. I even start that process, and then I put my other property on the market, you know, with the idea that I could probably do, they might even end up exchanging simultaneously, right? Or So you began the process of buying the second property before selling the first one? I could if I wanted to, right? Because I've identified this property. Maybe I just put a contract on it, knowing that I could sell. I mean, this is, you know, this is from an investor standpoint, right? right. Knowing that I can sell my existing property. Correspondingly, right? If I've got a property that I'm making, you know, that I bought 10 years ago and I'm making 10% on it, you know, I need to be able to find a better property in this market. And that's why a lot of 1031 exchanges, at least right now, don't happen because it's very difficult to find a better replacement property. So, you know, I have a client who, you know, sold the property. He's got a million dollar capital gain. It's going to cost him $300,000 to, if he has to pay the taxes. Well, we ultimately came to, after looking at what was available in this market where he wanted to be, we ultimately came to the conclusion that he was better off paying the taxes than he was buying a property that he wasn't going to get a really good, good rate of return on, you know, and was going to be a management problem for him because he didn't want to have, you know, big management problems. Wow. You know? So, you know, in the, he didn't want management problems. So what had ended up happening with him or can you elaborate? Well, in this scenario, we ended up, you know, paying the tax, you know, which is one of the, you know, it's not the best strategy, right? But there's only, right now, there's only four real things you can do. It's pay the tax, 1031 exchange, seller financing, you know, an installment sale. But now you've got the new opportunity zone scenario also that you can defer stuff. But with the 1031 exchange, you're getting, you know, it's not in, with the opportunity zone, you're getting a short-term deferral with the 1031 exchange. You could actually get a much longer-term deferral, possibly forever, because getting back to my client that's got the auto zones in Texas, his ultimate plan is to pass those properties on to his kids, right? So when he dies, his children will get a step up in basis on those properties. That's the existing tax law. And what will happen is they'll inherit the property at whatever the market value of that property is at that time. So if they were to turn around and sell those properties the next day, literally, right, they would have zero capital gain on the property because whatever the market value is, that's their basis, right? So that's another very powerful strategy. If you think about it, is using 1031 exchanges to ladder up your portfolio and then passing them along to your children and the increase, nobody ever pays a dime in capital gains on the increase in the market value of those properties. Wow. I mean, that's so valuable. And I hear more and more people talking about that, you know, being able to 1031 up, but but then just holding that and passing it on to their children because of what you just said. And so, you know, what about cost segregation and, you know, how does that tie into, uh, you know, 1031 exchange or any rules that we need to know about as far as that's concerned? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because, you know, Jonathan Twombly. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Jonathan sent me an email the other day and he said, hey, I've heard that when you cost segregate a property, you no longer can 1031 the five-year assets 
if you end up selling the property and trying to do a 1031 exchange, the five-year assets can't be cross-segregated per the new tax rules. Is that true, right? And so what ended up happening was the, the 2017 Jobs Act, right, Tax Cut and Jobs Act, what they did was they restated the rules for 1031 exchanges, and they said they eliminated personal property, right? So five-year stuff that's cross-segregated in a building is considered personal property, except that the definition of five-year property or personal property for depreciation rules is actually different than the definition for 1031 rules. What the 1031 rules say is state real estate law determines what is considered real property, right? So most state real estate laws say if something's affixed to the property, it's real property. So that sort of would override. So by 1031 definition, that means that those five, some of those five-year assets are not. Now, things like appliances or anything you could literally unplug and remove from the property, say in the case of an apartment building, those things would still be subject to tax at ordinary income rates in an exchange, okay? Because you could remove them. But in a cost segregation study, they also would allocate as part of five-year say, all of the plumbing and all of the electric that goes to the bathrooms and the appliances and stuff. So you would get, so that stuff is still affixed to the property. You can't take it away. So that stuff becomes, is still part of the real property in the exchange. So it's complicated, right? That is complicated. Yeah. The other thing that you have to keep in mind also is that how old is the building that I'm 1031 exchanging, right? So if I did a cross-segregation study 10 years ago on a building and now I'm doing an exchange, well, I've got this sales price that I have to allocate between the real property and the personal property. Well, if I've got personal property in this building that's 10 years old that I you know, did a cross-segregation study on, identified as five-year property, and now that five-year property is depreciated plus five years, what am I going to allocate? What portion of the sales price am I going to allocate for the tax calculation? Probably next to nothing right? You know, and I'm going to take that depreciation schedule and I'm going to retire every five-year asset that might be on a depreciation schedule that I don't have anymore, right? Or that I can retire at that point in time. So now I don't have to be taxed on that at all. So it really comes down to the allocation. So to make a long story short, when you're talking about 1031 and cost segregation, it's like so deal specific that you have to really have somebody like myself who's who understands the rules and is an investor and a business person, you know, look at it and say, okay, first of all, here's what real real property is going to be subject to tax. Now, what do we do with that? What allocation do, of the purchase or the sales price do we make? And what can we retire to mitigate the extent of the tax that's due on that property? When is it too late to pursue a 1031? Let's say I'm selling a property I've already got listed, or maybe it's under contract to sell to someone else. Or, you know, when in that process, is it too late to say, you know, or or that we can still make it happen or contact somebody like yourself? I know we need that, you know, with 45 days, but, you know, as far as the timing of when this property closes, and could you elaborate on that again? Yeah. So it's too late when the property's sold. So once you've touched the money, it's too late. Right. But here's so here's a great story. I had a client a number of years ago who approached me and they were like four days before the closing. And it's a father and son and they have the property in an LLC. 
and they have a, a big gain. They got the guys looking at paying about $500,000 in taxes. So calls me four days before the closing. How do I get rid of this? Right. And I said, well, I said, did you do a 1031 exchange? Right. He's like, no, no, no. I don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. He's like, I want to buy another property, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to do it with my father. My father and I are getting along. He's really making me angry these days. I don't want to be his business partner anymore. And so I'd rather pay the half a million dollars in tax than buy another building with my father, right? So how, how aggravated must he be, right? You know, wow. you think about that. So I said, well, wait a second. You know, there's a solution here, right? So what we did, and this is four days before the closing, is they retitled the – so the rules say if I own a property in an LLC – I have to buy my replacement property in that same LLC. But what you can do is you can separate the interest. So what we did was they retitled the property so that the father and the son owned it as tenants in common, right? And once you own a property as tenants in common, the interest can be split and each person can do what they want with their half, say in this case, right? So what this guy did was he took his half and he did a separate 1031 exchange from his father, right? So now we're talking to the attorney about, here, this is what we got to do. We can do this, right? The attorney's like, the closing's on Monday, you know? How am I going to get all this work done over the weekend? You know, I was planning on doing this, that, and the other thing. I'm like, well, you can't do a few hours work over the weekend to save your client half a million dollars? Are you serious, right? Right. Put the closing off or do something. But, you know, this work, you know, you can't just say, oh, well, sorry, you know? So... The point, you know, to answer your question, anytime right up to the closing, you can decide to do a 1031 exchange and being aware of those kind of rules is really helpful if you don't want. But that's one of my favorite stories because the guy literally is willing to pay the money. A half a million dollars to get out of the partnership yeah. and with a family member. Yeah. You know, yeah. but what about these things that are called that, you know, we hear uh, reverse 1031 exchanges and, you know, what is that? And, you know, and how do we apply something like a reverse 1031? Yeah, I mean, a reverse 1031 exchange is kind of what we were talking about before, but you actually, you're buying the replacement property before you sell the other property. So let's say in, in, in that other scenario that we were talking about before, where I said, hey, you should be looking for your replacement property before you actually, you know, if you find a good property, you can then put your other property on the market. Well, let's say you couldn't time the, the thing exactly. You could, in theory, buy the first property, the replacement property, and then a few weeks, days later, whatever, within 180 days, sell the old property, and then those proceeds would be allocated towards the first one. The problem with doing that kind of reverse exchange is you've got to have the money to close on the first property because you're not using the money from the sale of the one you're selling. So you have to have some money. I mean, you know, that would be like you as a syndicator going to your passive investors and saying, Hey, look, we found this great property. Let's do an exchange, you know, but I need you guys to come up with another, you know, whatever it is in order to facilitate that. Wow. Well, Ted, before we run out of time, we're getting close, but anything else, you know, about 1031 exchange specifically that we need to make sure the listeners know about? Yeah. I mean, it's a strategy that's a great strategy. It's most advantageously used in a rising market. And 
It can be one of the best wealth building strategies there is. You just need to make sure that you have a good CPA and a good qualified intermediary who knows the rules. And you can't be like one of these people who, you know, wants to try to skirt the rules. You know, it's, it's a very strict rule process and, you know, you just have to follow the procedures and stuff in order to make sure that the exchange is done properly. A qualified intermediary, how do we find somebody like that? You know, I mean, most of the time they're listed. You go on to Google and type in 1031, you know, exchange intermediary. There's a lot of people that are out there facilitating exchanges. Awesome. Ted, what's a way that you've recently improved your business that we could all apply to ours? Wow. You know, just the starting in January, I started remarketing my business because I wanted to replace a line of work that I was doing that I wasn't crazy about, which was forensic accounting. I was doing a lot of divorce accounting work. And I said, you know what, I'm going to take that time that I've been using there and I'm going to start doing more real estate tax work, which has always been like 75, 80% of my business anyway. So I started remarketing my real estate practice using social media, which I had never really done a lot of before. And honestly, the results have been amazing. You know, I, I actually two or three years ago told a marketing guy that, you know, professionals don't market on Facebook. I was definitely wrong. You know, there's a lot going on, a lot of really cool real estate investment stuff going on on Facebook and LinkedIn and everywhere, YouTube, you know. So I'm, I'm getting educated right now. That's It's working. Awesome. How have you educated yourself about marketing on social media? You know, part of it is just doing it, you know, trial and error. The other part is reading. I just got done reading Gary Vaynerchuk's book, Crushing It, which is about, you know, building a personal brand on the internet. You know, and I'm like, oh, here, I'm doing a few things right. And here's where I can improve, you know, what I'm doing. And even this whole, whole, all this podcasting, you know, is really very interesting. What's the number one thing that's contributed to your success? I think the number one thing that's contributed to my success is that people seek me out because they know that I'm both a CPA and an investor. So I kind of speak their language. I'm doing what they're doing. And people like that. And the, the most common you know, people will call and say, you know, my CPA is a really good guy. He's smart and everything, but he doesn't know real estate. And I'm looking for somebody who really knows real estate, who's doing it, who speaks the language. So I think that's probably the getting into that niche has been the thing that's really made a difference in my practice. Nice. And Ted, again, you've been another great guest and I really appreciate your time and elaborating on this very important tool that we need to be aware of 1031 Exchange. But tell the listeners how they can learn more about you and your business. All right, great. Hey, thanks a lot. And I appreciate you having me on also. And you've been always a very gracious host. So thank you so much. You can reach me at my email is Ted, T-E-D at LanzaroCPA.com. And I'll spell that out for you. T-E-D at L-A-N-Z-A-R-O-C-P-A.com. My office number is 203-922-1742. My website is www lanzarocpa.com. You can look me up, Ted Lanzaro, on Facebook, and uh, we distribute a lot of uh, really good information there also. Awesome. Thank you, Ted. Don't go yet. Thank you for listening to today's episode. 
I would love it if you would go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. I want to hear your feedback. It makes a big difference in getting the podcast out there. You can also go to the Real Estate Syndication Show on Facebook so you can connect with me and we can also receive feedback and your questions there that you want me to answer on the show. Subscribe too so you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, I want to keep you updated. So head over to lifebridgecapital.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with me, sign up on the contact us page so you can talk to me directly. Have a blessed day and I will talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.